welcome back to our service. Um, and for those of you guys tuning in, um, thank you for tuning in with us this morning. Um, before we continue on, I'd like to now invite Rachel up to read God's word for us. So, Rachel. Today's scripture reading comes from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. The word glory. Glory. How do you define that word? I tried Googling it myself because I tried to um, figure out what glory meant when I was talking about this word with uh, some of the other preachers and pastors um, a couple of weeks ago. And we just realized we couldn't figure it out. It was kind of tough. And we all laughed. And one of our preachers uh, mentioned that maybe the fact that we're laughing shows us that this is a really, really hard word to define. I tried Googling it as well. And according to Google, some of the first few definitions were the following. Highest honor, praise, beauty. But to be honest, those things still don't really fully express the weight of the word glory. Because glory is one of those things that I think we all have a really hard time uh, trying to capture the actual essence of the word. But we can all agree that when we see it, the moment that we stand before it, the moment that we encounter it, we all instinctively realize that this is a moment of glory. It has that kind of wow factor to it, according to one of the pastors, um, that leaves everyone's mouths slightly open as we come face to face before it. Now, in our narrative for today, we encounter a kind of glory that precedes all other glories before the known universe came to exist. This original glory, the word of God, who is Christ, this is the glory that we'll be reading about today. And to understand this, we'll be going through three points, the beginning of glory, the coming of glory, and then our response to glory. So firstly, the beginning of glory. Let's take a look at verses one to two again. This is what it says. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. You see, it doesn't get any earlier than that. 
the beginning of our entire human history, even before anything else in the entire universe existed, was the word from eternity past. And this word was not only with God, but this word was God. An individual by the name of Anselm of Canterbury, he's, he's a very early Christian thinker from the 12th century. This is the way that he defined God. And I think it's a very interesting definition that helps restructure our framework. And this is what he says. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. I'll say that one more time. It's a little bit of a tongue twister for me at least. That than which nothing greater can be conceived. Now what he's saying is this. If the God of the Bible actually does exist, then by definition of being God, he's greater than the greatest being that all of humanity could possibly think up together. God is still greater than that. And so when it comes to this definition, this idea, this concept of glory, the word was in the beginning. He was in the beginning even before creation came to be. That means the word was this purest, most undefiled, immaculate glory that we could possibly imagine, and it's still a glory that's greater than that. He's greater than all other glories because he is the first glory of God himself. Now, if we jump a little bit ahead to verse 14, which is at the very end of our reading, we see that the Word is actually the Son of God. He's Christ. And now, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about how Christ came to dwell among us, but for now, if we now substitute the word Word with Christ in our first few verses, this is how our reading goes. It goes, in the beginning was Christ. And Christ was with God, and Christ was God. All things were made through Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul in the book of uh, Colossians, this is what he talks about uh, when he talks about Christ being the first before all things. He says, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And so we see, in the beginning was Christ. Cool. But why does that matter for us then? Why does any of this really matter for us? Well, the beauty of the narrative from the Bible is this. That all of our stories regardless of who we are or what we may have done up to now, we all converge at this starting point. We all converge at this starting point with Christ who existed before all other things came into being. Christ is the origin. Christ is the starting point for all of life and all its beauty, wonder, and glory. In fact, that word beginning that we read in verse 1 in the original word, uh, it means arche, meaning um, from which our English word archetype comes from. And archetype, as we know, means like the original pattern, model, model, or design. So then we see that the original pattern, model, or design for humanity, the archetype of humanity is Christ. He is the beginning of all things, of all glory. Moving on, verse 3, we continue to read that all things were made through him. 
meaning all of the created order that we see around us. And take, a, take your time right now to just look to your left, look to your right, um, even at homes, just think about where you're living or all the places that you've been to. You know, all of us, all those places we've been to up to now, we all carry within our DNA the very fingerprints of our creator. Genesis 1.27 says that God created man in his own image. If you pause and you think about that, there is some tremendous glory behind that kind of statement, that we are created in the image of God. We bear the divine image of God himself, that every person listening to this message right now has inherent dignity and inherent worth. Regardless of the differences in our jobs, wealth, uh, political views, even religious views, culture, or skin color, we all bear that image. We all trace back to the same root, the same glorious beginning in Christ, who is the archetype and the architect of all of humanity. And if that is true, then there's nothing that's more redeeming to our identity than to know that the glorious one who was in the beginning took his time to carefully and thoughtfully knit us together to who we are today. None of us are accidents because all of us, we were all fearfully and wonderfully made. We're all made through Christ. And when that truth sinks in, it really does become groundbreaking in the way that we we see each other, in the way that we value each other as created beings carrying the fingerprints of God himself. Many years ago, I was visiting Paris with a friend. Now, both of us, we spoke very little French. And it was pretty difficult and frustrating for us to go around the city because we had a hard time just communicating in the first place. We only knew how to say the basic things like, uh, where's the washroom, can I have some water? And when we wanted to order things, we just pointed to the menu. (laughs) Um, But I do remember one encounter that we had. This was while we were at a cafe. Here, we're just minding our own business, just eating lunch, and all of a sudden, an older couple leans into our table And mind you, this is way before COVID, so that kind of stuff was okay. They lean over to our table, and they start talking to us, and and they start speaking to us in English. And now, the thing that caught us both off guard wasn't the fact that they spoke to us in English, but it was the fact that they guessed that we were from Canada. Now, I wasn't sure what gave it away, especially since both of us, we, we could have been literally from any other part of the world, but they were pretty confident with the guess that we came from Canada. So I asked them, what, what, what gave it away? You know, was it, was it what I was wearing, um, the way we were speaking English? Like, what, what gave it away? And they laughed, and they pointed to my backpack, and they said that gave it away. Because my backpack, it was actually uh, a mech backpack. Um, at the time, before it was bought out, it was Mountain Equipment Co-op. And that's a purely Canadian uh, outdoor gear company. And so when they saw that, they knew immediately, oh, these guys must be from Canada. And you know what? To be identified, to be able to identify with someone else because of sharing the same roots of the same country in a foreign place, 
for me, that just felt so refreshing. It actually almost felt dignifying because for the first you know, few mo- minutes, I was able to speak English freely and I felt like I could just communicate all my thoughts and all my feelings and expressions freely. And it was such a nice moment. And all that was because we were from Canada. Or actually, let me, let me tell you this, it all got sparked because of a single backpack. A single backpack. But now, imagine the kind of ripple effects. The kind of ripple effects it can have when we start recognizing and we start embracing each other in our community because of our common origin that traces all the way back, farther than our home countries, but it traces all the way back to the very beginning of all things, realizing, recognizing that we are all created beings carrying the fingerprints of our God because we were all made through Christ. For the believers, that means we should be the ones actively pursuing a kind of community that's inclusive, that's welcoming, that's redeeming to all peoples because we realize, we ourselves realize that we have the same root, the same origin. It is in Christ. Everything in creation falls under the order of Christ. So that changes the way that we treat one another, the way we live and the way we act. And for those of you who are exploring the Christian faith, this is an invitation for you to consider how the Bible proclaims that all are created equal, all trace back to the same source of origin, which is Christ. And being created by Christ, all are image bearers of God with immense dignity and worth. This radical redemption in our value and worth as human beings, it's beautiful and it's a glorious thing. And the Bible says it all begins with Christ, the beginning of glory. And now as we continue in our text, we read about how this glory, the word of God, enters into our world. A few verses to, do, uh, to illustrate that. Verses four to five say, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse nine says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. And this brings us to our second point, the coming of glory. Now we have to ask ourselves, what is the reality of this world that Christ comes into what is the current reality the current state of this world and I appreciate how Ryan uh, during our liturgy up to now was speaking about the darkness that we are in the darkness of this world that a light shines into well verses four to five tell us that in uh, that the light of men shines in the darkness meaning that the world is a very dark place and it's in need of of Christ. Myself, um, I used to work as an outreach worker many, many years ago in a low-income neighborhood uh, in our city. And while I was working there, there was a, a boy named Jay. I'll call him Jay. 
He was extremely difficult to deal with during our after-school program. He'd always uh, start fights with other kids, with other leaders. Um, He'd start fights verbally or physically. Usually the verbal fights led to the physical fights, so just fights left, right, and center. Everywhere he went, it was like a a tornado going around. And he, he was also a major headache for the leaders because he would never listen to any of our instructions. And so I eventually, with time, uh, began to try to build a relationship with him uh, in the following months because none of the kids wanted to uh, be friends with him. The leaders, they just found him a big headache, so they always passed him off to me. And and so I tried. And I'm going to be honest with you, it was really, really hard. Really, really hard getting to know him. Really hard as... You know, as you know, with kids in general, they know how to push your buttons. They know exactly what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and they look for a response. Well, imagine that times 100. And each time I tried to get to know him, he'd, he'd push my buttons. He'd, he'd really push me to, to the limits, but um, with time and persistence, uh, he started to open up and soften up. And uh, we started to build a relationship. Now, one of the days... As I was picking up the kids uh, from, uh, from school to walk them over to our after-school program, I saw Jay in the distance in the playground getting him into a straight-up brawl with another kid. And when I saw this, I had to uh, run over and uh, break them up uh, before they continued to, you know, pound at each other and beat each other up. And knowing Jay myself, I had to pull him aside and really just calm him down and wait for him to cool off um, so that things didn't escalate even more than they had. And as he was calming down, I had the opportunity to genuinely ask him uh, why he was always getting into fights with everyone around him, if, if there was anything that was going on. And it was the moment, it was that moment that we were able to have a heart-to-heart with one another. And I asked him the following words. I said, Jay, why is it that you're always getting into fights with everyone? Is there something that's, that's going on that you want to tell me about? Like, what's going on with, you know, what's going on inside your head as, as, as these things play out? And what he said to me, I still remember to this day because my heart was crushed, absolutely crushed, as I heard this 10-year-old kid share about his view of this dark and messed up world that we're living in. This is what he said to me. He said, Stephen, if I don't fight for myself, who will? I mean, the teachers won't, the kids won't, so if I don't fight for myself, nobody else will fight for me. If I don't fight for myself, who will? I mean, those are some chilling and profound words from a 10-year-old's mouth. I mean, first of all, no kid should be saying those words in the first place. But the reality is, is that this elementary school kid already knew what kind of world he was living in. This kind of dark world where everyone everyone was out to look out for their own interests. No one's going to protect someone else. And that for him, he had to fight for himself and fend for himself because if he didn't, Nobody else will do that for him. This is the kind of world we're living in. It's a dark and hopeless kind of world that's entirely at odds with one another. Everyone trying to get ahead of the other person. Everyone's looking out for their own selves. 
And in fact, when we read our passage, this darkness that we read about has an even deeper level to it. It's talking about a spiritual kind of darkness where we are not only at odds with one another, but we are at odds with God himself. We are enemies with God. But what does the word of God still do? Christ still chooses to come down into that kind of darkness, into that kind of hostility of our world. The word of God becomes flesh to come and dwell among us. Christ comes to meet us exactly where we are. You know, that's uh, the word dwell that we read about. It is some language, uh, some kind of Old Testament language that's taken from Exodus chapter 40 when Moses writes these words about God coming down to be with the people of Israel. He says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God coming down as a cloud of glory at that time was already a radically personal encounter that the Israelites got to experience that no other nations could even possibly think of. That was unheard of that there's a religion where this God comes down to his people. When all the other religions at the time were talked about how you as the person had to do your best to try to reach God through all these uh, sacrifices, acts of worship, this and that, in order to try to meet God. But here, the God of the Bible comes down to his people. But to compare to that, here's the difference in our text today. The word of God doesn't just come to dwell among his people as a cloud in a tabernacle. Rather, the word of God comes to dwell among his people in a degree that's even closer, that's even more personal than ever before. Christ becomes a human being himself. The son of God, the king of heaven, leaves all of his heavenly riches as the creator of the universe to come into our world, our dark and broken, hostile world, to become a human being himself. He comes to become born literally into obscurity on the outskirts of everything that's central and important. At the time, which was like downtown Jerusalem, downtown Toronto, he's just born in the boonies where no one, no one knows where he's born in. They don't even care about where he's born in. And yet he's born into that kind of uh, the edge of humanity to just situate himself right into the center of all that is broken and poor and needy. The giver of life, the true light, comes into darkness, all to offer up his life as a sacrifice for the life of his created beings. In the book of Luke chapter 23, we read about how Christ dies for our sins. And this is what the account is. I'll read it for us. Luke records, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. 
Now jumping on a little bit. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. But he's done nothing wrong. Christ has done nothing wrong to deserve of such a brutal and gruesome death. The way that he chose to pour himself out in all the anguish and pain of being tortured and killed on a cross, which at the time for the Romans, uh, it was one of the most absolute lowest and most humiliating ways to be killed and then left hanging for everyone else to see. The one who's done nothing wrong, the one who's completely and totally innocent, dies for you and dies for me. And through his death, through his death, we gain life by believing that Christ died for our sins so that we would be forgiven and saved. Now hear this. Christ's death on the cross, that wasn't the lowest moment of his time in the world. Rather, Everything in his life had always been pointing to, had always been leading to this very climactic moment on his, of his death on the cross. John chapter 12, uh, verse 16, this is what um, John records. He says, his disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things. Or John 12, 23 also says this about Jesus talking to his disciples. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Referring to his crucifixion, death, and then resurrection as a moment of glorification. You see, it's always been part of the Father's plan that his one and only most beloved Son would come and die on the cross for sinners like you and for me. You see, the cross wasn't a, st- it wasn't a statement of shame and humiliation like the Romans saw it, but the cross was a statement of glory, redemption, and salvation for all who would look upon Christ and for all who would believe in his name. And here is the glorious truth about the cross. Christ loves you. Christ loves you. And there's nothing that you could have done that puts you too far from the reach of the love of Christ. There's no sin that can prevent you from being forgiven and healed by Christ's work on the cross. For that is how glorious Christ's work on the cross really is to be able to forgive any and all sins for those who would look on him and believe in his name. The glory of the cross is this, that you are wanted, you are valued, and you are loved by Christ. The word made flesh comes into our world to dwell and become a human being like us. But it doesn't stop there, but to die for us, for our sins, 
so that we could be saved and so that we could be adopted into the family of God. That is the glory that we see that's full of grace and full of truth. And so, how do we respond to this glory? How do we respond? Oops, dropped a piece of paper there. That's okay. And I'd like to conclude uh, by reading verses 10 to 13 and seeing what the responses look like. This is what it reads. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. We see two responses here. The first is this, the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own didn't receive him. Even though the world was made through Christ, they didn't recognize their own creator as he stepped into their lives. Verse 11 actually is quite revealing of how deep this rejection really is. Because in the original language, that phrase, his own, could be better uh, understood to mean that Christ came to literally like his own home and was still rejected by his own creation and his own people. I mean, there's nothing more crushing than to be rejected by the people under your own roof and not have a place to be able to call your home. And that is the first way that people respond to Christ. We see a fundamental brokenness in the relationship between Christ and the world who chooses not to know him and not to receive him. And now we see the second second response. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I mean, what greater glory is there than to become a child of God, to be able to know and be known by God himself, to be able to enter into a personal relationship with your maker. I mean, this invitation to glory is available to all who would choose to believe in the word of God made flesh, who is crucified for your sins so you may receive eternal life and be grafted into God's family to be forever wanted, to be forever valued, and forever loved by God himself. This invitation is open for you today if you choose to turn and to believe in Christ. And if you don't know Christ yet, ask the Father to reveal the glory of Christ to you. For why would a perfectly loving Father not want to answer that request from anyone who asks. And for those of you who do know Christ, respond to, his, to the glory of his death and resurrection on the cross by giving thanks to him, for praising him, for remembering him, recalling all the ways that he's been good and loving to us in this past year and in the year to come to remember how he is this faithful and good and loving God. Because in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in the beginning, you were God. You are God today, and you will forever be God. And we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sins so that we could enter into a relationship with the God who was at the beginning and who is eternal, who is forever loving, who is gracious and merciful. Lord, our prayer is that you may help us to be able to see that glory Glory, which is a hard word to define, yet glory, which is something that we all instinctively recognize when we come face to face with it. Would you reveal the glory of Christ today to us? And all this we pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.